Talking History on News Talk. Good evening and welcome. We're talking history on News Talk 106 to 108 with me, Patrick Gagan. In tonight's show, we're looking at one of the most iconic of all the figures in Irish mythology, Fionn McCool and his many legends. We'd love you to join our discussion. Just send us a text on 53106. Text costs 30 cents. Or you can email us at talkinghistory at newstalk.com. Last week, we discussed the fall of Robespierre, found out about the former British cabinet minister who faked his own death, and explored the life and afterlife of a Donegal saint. And if you want to listen back to this or any of our older shows, just go to our website, newstalk.com or wherever you download your podcasts. Tonight's debate is on Fionn McCool. From the story of the Salmon of Knowledge, his leadership of the Fianna, to the creation of the Giant's Causeway, the different legends of Fionn McCool have entertained and inspired people for centuries. And in tonight's show, we want to explore the texts and traditions behind the legend of this iconic figure in Irish mythology. And to help me do this, I'm delighted to welcome our panel of experts. Dr. Natasha Sumner is Associate Professor in the Department of Celtic Languages and Literature at Harvard University, where she's the director of the Fionn Cycle Folklore Project, and she's an expert on the historical development of the Gaelic Fionn Cycle. Dr. Kevin Murray lectures in the Department of Early and Medieval Irish at UCC, and is currently the head of the School of Irish Learning. An expert on the Fenian Cycle, his books include The Early Fenian Corpus and The early Finn cycle. Brian O'Sullivan is an Irish writer based in New Zealand and has been praised for incorporating Irish culture, language, history and mythology in his novels and he's the author of the internationally successful Fionn McCool series. Dr Sheila Nivaraku lectures in the Department of Modern Irish at UCC and is an expert on the Oceanic Lays and the Finn Cycle as well as Irish love poetry. Dr James McKillop, Emeritus Professor, is past President of the American Conference for Irish Studies and a former visiting fellow in Celtic languages at Harvard. Descended from Jacobite soldiers who fought at Culloden Moor, he is the author of Fionn McCool, Celtic Myth in English Literature and The Dictionary of Celtic Mythology. Well, you're all very welcome and later in the show I'll also We'll be talking to Joseph Flahov, Project Assistant on the Dictionary of Medieval Latin from Celtic Sources at the Royal Irish Academy and the author of The Fenian Cycle in Irish and Scots Gaelic Literature. Well, as I say, you are all very welcome. And James McKellop, Jim, I might begin with you. And I suppose a question about... The fact that we don't just have one Fionn McCool, we seem to have very many different Fionns based on the very many different uh, traditions that have been passed down, the different texts, the different interpretations and reimaginings. So you've got a whole... A, a whole range of biographies that you could that you could draw from, a whole range of different images of Fionn, and there isn't just one simple story or narrative to his biography. Uh, yes, well, uh, I have to to say, um, first of all, in my, in my defense, m- my book uh, is is now thirty five years old, and all these other people are closer to the research. But the issue you raise is one that is prime on on my mind, and I think it uh, it, it's, um, it comes from the, ultimately the book of Linster saying how uh, in medieval times storytellers had to know so many Fenian tales, uh, and. Uh, around the world, when you have uh, important heroes, that, and there are that many, uh, it, I mean, I think, for example, of Heracles in Greece, uh, you, you get stories that run counter to the, um, uh, to the, uh, to the what shall I say, the, the norm, the, 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 the template. Well, um, uh, 
what I was concerned, remember my book is about in English literature, is how many things that are, don't necessarily have antecedents in Irish. Uh, but a thing like the, the Carlson story, uh, the legend of Nachmani. Now, since that time, I've traced that, that that's actually borrowed from a French farce in which uh, Finn looks, looks quite foolish. Uh, he behaves like a baby to, to chase off the, the visiting giant. But the fact that it attached itself to, to Fenian tradition uh, is, is what fascinated me from the very beginning. Well, Jim, I think you're being far too modest. Your book may be uh, uh, over 30 years old, but it is quite brilliant. I was reading uh, parts of it over the weekend and uh, some some really interesting insights into development of myth and how it's how the story has been passed on and used. And you have a whole chapter on on James Joyce's Finnegan's Wake and how how that uses it. But you also discuss the idea of it, the story possibly being part of a monomyth and maybe part of a, 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 a kind of an unconscious understanding of the idea of the nation and I was wondering what exactly you mean by that and I suppose how yeah. cent- I suppose how central the Fionn story is to is to these wider questions about about identity well uh, I, I'm less keen on the term monomyth which is a coinage of, uh, of Joseph Campbell uh, and of course it does come from Finnegan's Wake I mean he slept with Finnegan's Wake under his pillow every night and he, and he absorbed it in every part of his body uh, but it is uh, what, what I would say, because you have so many people here who've worked more with Irish texts than I have, uh, I will point out that in this supporting, it's answering your question, not hemming and awing, is um, a number of Fenian stories have been retold in America, uh, and they're old. You have to search for them. Uh, a woman in Wisconsin named um, um, Madden uh, did her dissertation uh, called it was it was on it was typed Finn McCool and we pronounce it the English way forgive me and 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 Natty Bumpo the uh, the hero from from uh, from Cooper well when I did was working on my project I found all kinds of stories attributing things happening in the West uh, like the uh, the digging of the uh, uh, the Grand Canyon for example being attributed to to Finn Finn was uh, used in American propaganda. Uh, in World War II, to encourage Irish people uh, to to join, you know, to volunteer, uh, you know, uh, into other services other than conscription. So, um, there, it, it, well, I mean, uh, uh, Campbell thought there was really only one hero. That's what he meant about Monomath. But uh, Fion has been available. Uh, for almost a hero for hire uh, to play these others' roles as, as they've come up in other traditions in such ways that uh, many Irish people wouldn't recognize them at all. Now, I, I find a parallel uh, in this uh, if, in, 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 in uh, Danny Boy. Uh, Danny Boy, the ultimate uh, Irish uh, traditional music, and a large number of American blacks, not just Paul Robeson, Elvis Presley, all kinds of other people thought it was their own. It, it found, they took it as, they felt it as their expression. Now, that's not myth- mythological, but it is part of w- w- how Ireland lends itself to the world. And, uh, an American um, uh, journalist of about two generations ago said, uh, Ireland is the Gentiles' Israel, uh, that um, that that when people in other parts of the world, particularly in the United States, uh, come across things that are Irish, they, they don't find them alien. Uh, they are they are ready to adapt them. 
So whereas most Americans today would not know the story that I discovered was published about 1910, uh, about, about the Fin digging the, 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 um, uh, uh, the Grand Canyon, Nevertheless, it did exist at one time. You know, it, there's a record of it, and, and I think I've, I think I've, I think I've said enough. <laughs> no, 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 fascinating stuff, and really the global reach of the story, Sheila. We're going to talk about the, the the different elements of tradition and the different cycles and so on. But let's jump into the 18th century and James McPherson because his works, which seem to have suggested that these were based on true stories, or it kind of reinvented or re-energized, perhaps to use a modern phrase, it rebooted the Fionn story for a new audience, and it was incredible how it became. It had such a reach then, it inspired Napoleon Bonaparte, uh, Felix Mendelssohn, uh, Gotha, that, that all of these figures in, in, in the 19th century then uh, looked to Macpherson's work. And the story of Fionn had this, had this as, as Jim was saying, had this global reach that you know, might not have been imagined you know, centuries earlier. Um, yeah, I mean, I mean, I, I, I think it was a bit of a game changer. Yeah, Macpherson. Um, so he was a figure of great controversy, um, as, as you probably know, um, because um, yeah, basically he claimed that Oshin, Ossian, um, he called him, uh, was a historical poet, and um, certain people didn't believe him, and so on. Um, and then in Ireland, people were outraged as well because he suggested that Oshin and Fionn and so on that they all belong to Scotland only. So, so of course, the Irish were not very happy with that. Um, so, so I suppose my, my interest is in the manuscripts, and and I suppose the question of the the, the influence of Macpherson on 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 the Irish tradition, I suppose, would be kind of my main area of interest there. But but it's quite hard to gauge. You don't get a lot of references you know in the Irish manuscripts to, to Macpherson but um, there's a lot of indirect influence because um, a lot of scholars and people were attracted to, to studying Irish and studying Ireland and and, and the Scottish Gaeltacht as well as a result of Macpherson and certainly a lot of the manuscripts that I would work with I, I think a lot of them wouldn't have survived actually if it wasn't for Macpherson because you had all these people coming in and suddenly taking interest in them and collecting collecting manuscripts and sources and, and preserving them and and people also started, I suppose, to collect oral material as well about Fionn McCool. There, there's a very rich tradition there. So, <clears throat> sorry. So, um, yeah. Now, now Macpherson's poems they're they're very very different actually to 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 the, to the Fionn poems um, that, that I would be working on, and it just just in their tone and 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 I suppose the the emotions, the, the way they sort of deal with emotions. Um, so Macpherson would have been influenced, I suppose, by ideas of romanticism and the sublime and all this kind of thing. Um, Whereas the Irish and Scottish originals would would be very very different to that. Um, and, and Sheila, yeah. do you see different types of Fionn in the in the poems and in the texts that you work on? That different images and different ways he's presented. Sometimes as a hero, sometimes maybe less heroic. Uh, sometimes a great leader, sometimes not so great. That that you see different different uh, impressions of Fionn being presented. 
Um, yeah, that's true. I, I would say he mostly is is presented as 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 a great hero. I suppose um, the, the biggest exception there would be, I suppose, the story of Dermot and Grawny, where where he's presented as a bit of a villain. But in most of the poems that I work work with, they would be they're, they're called the Fionnleys, so they're they're narrative poems about about Fionn for the most part, about his adventures and his life. And yeah, he is generally seen as as the big hero, um, and and he's, he he sort of commands all all the other Fionn, and basically they sort of fall apart if if, if he disappears or any anything you know but then then sometimes you do get um sort of more nuanced depictions where you sort of see that well maybe he's not as as as, as confident as all that or maybe he goes astray and or sometimes he, he he doesn't fully maybe control the other members of the Fianna they start questioning him and so on so I suppose the reason for that is a hero who, who's who's perfect and who always knows what to do wouldn't be very interesting you know whereas um I, I suppose a lot of these poems they, they sort of feature conflict and and, and drama and um, so, so, yeah, you definitely have that um, th- that side of it, too. Um, Very good. Brian, I might bring you in because wh- wh- how big a challenge was it to try and take the, the Fionn story or rather the Fionn stories and try and reinvent them then for a contemporary audience and to try and turn them into a, a, a new telling of the story? What were the challenges involved there and how did you decide which elements of the different stories to use? Um, I, I guess the, the biggest obstacle for me was dealing with the, the huge amount of misinformation uh, around the character and uh, around that whole sort of uh, Fenian cycle. Um, I think you kind of hit the nub earlier on when you mentioned that there was different sort of types of Fionn or variants of the actual character, and that's very much kind of what I was hitting. Um, after this, the, uh, I went through this whole bunch of research and essentially kind of worked out that there was actually, in a sense, two different kinds of Fionn. You had sort of one Gaelic Fionn McCool, which was uh, the mythological figure, which had been developed over, you know, maybe a thousand years of Irish culture. But then you also had this kind of plastic Finn McCool, which was a kind of an anglicized, culturally sanitized interpretation of the Gaelic Fionn. So um, when um, uh, most of the sort of, uh, you have this real disconnect between academic Fionn and sort of entertainment Fionn, for want of a better term. And um, it's a... Uh, so a lot of the work that I was doing was trying to sort of go back, nudge the, the direction back towards sort of Gaelic Fionn and away from that sort of plastic Finn McCool. And Brian, in terms of the Gaelic Fionn, what elements that you know people would be most familiar with are, are part of that? For example, the, the, the salmon of knowledge or the salmon of wisdom, the, the leadership of the Fionn, which are the elements that you would see as being part of that Gaelic Fionn? Um, I sort of go back to a lot more sort of wider than individual stories. So, for example, uh, a lot of the stuff I do tends to deal with the sort of the, the tribal history and stuff that would have happened back in the day. The sort of representation of Fionn and the Fianna. So, for example, the Fianna, um, the sort of the, the generic understanding out there is that uh, there was only one sort of, you know, Fianna, whereas in fact Fianna is the plural for the word Fian, which is a war band. Um, so each sort of tribe had a war band, and uh, you, sort of so bringing that kind of reality of the sort of the cultural context and the historical context into those uh, Fionn stories is kind of what I really kind of focused on. Um, you can bring the sort of the larger stories like the salmon and uh, all of those sort of more well-known sort of concepts in as well, but uh, you sort of have to sort of start from a more um, accessible kind of character from a, you know, uh, from, from a personal representation kind of style. 
Very good. Kevin, you're an expert on these early texts, uh, the early Fenian corpus, the early Finn cycle. I wonder what do we see about Fionn from these different texts? Uh, uh, can you tell us about the sources that we have and maybe the different versions of Fionn that we see in them? Well, I think I suppose the, 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 the first thing to say is that before the 11th century, even though we have lots of fragmentary materials concerning Fionn, we really know, we really have very little compared with what we have later on. The material that Sheila is talking about later on is there's an explosion of material after, we'll say, around 1200s, which brings much more material to the fore. But pre- previous to the 11th century, really, what we only have are fragments. Now, we have fragments going back as far as the 7th century. So from the dawn of written literature in Irish, we do have materials concerning Finn McCovell and... Um, his war band and his son and his grandson, etc. And the character portrayal that you were talking about earlier, it's interesting. What I think what makes Finn such an interesting character, Finn or Fionn such an interesting character, is that he's presented in many different ways. He's presented quite positively, as Sheila mentioned, uh, quite frequently. But often you get these negative portrayals, like you get in the Toriokt, like you get in other stories, particularly when he's presented as an old man. And actually, we only have, really have one very early positive presentation of him as an old man, and that's in this famous story, Tuckford Galva, which is seen to be the first great long narrative concerning Fionn before Ogil of Nishinorok. So I think that there's a small number of very fragmentary stories which are from all over the country, which is very interesting as well. They're being cultivated down in West Cork, they're being cultivated around Cairn County Tipperary, they've been cultivated in the north of Ireland. So see, the tradition seems to have been very fragmentary in the written literature, but very widespread, and then it burgeons in the early 13th century with Ogilvy Nishinorok. And Kevin, what exactly is Fionn in these stories? Is he a, a regular human who just has kind of extraordinary skills? Is he a kind of almost a superhero type in that he, in some accounts he seems to have powers and special gifts? Or is there an element that he almost has, 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 has certain uh, godlike powers that makes him extraordinary? Because even there is d- different discussions about his height and whether he's a giant or whether he's not. That I, I'm just wondering, how is he presented in terms of what exactly is he? He transcends boundaries, I think, is the main thing about him. In the early sources, he's presented as a great warrior. He's presented as a great leader. And they're always, you know, they're elements which go together in many stories and many characters. You think of Ku Colin and things and other characters like that. But he's also a great poet. And that's one of the crucial things. So he transcends many different boundaries. He's presented as, I think it's the multifaceted presentation of him different in different sources, different in different parts of the country. So, for example, you were talking about the, um, the Salmon of Knowledge, which is a story that everyone knows, but there's actually an older version of how Fionn, you know, the, 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 tradition, the tradition of the Salmon of Knowledge is that he burnt his thumb on the, the salmon that was being cooked, and therefore he got access to the knowledge when he put the thumb in his mouth. But in the oldest version of how he got his knowledge, he actually caught his thumb in the door between this world and the other world, and when he put the thumb in his mouth to, because it, was, it felt sore to him, that that's how he accessed the knowledge. So that there are different traditions from different parts of the country, uh, tending towards a certain amount of uniformity. Like in the Ogil Nishinorok, we hear about the, the Fian warriors, that they're great size, that the, when St. Patrick and people of his generation meet the Fian warriors who come back, they're impressed but by how big they are to present, not quite as giants, but as much bigger than normal men. So there, there's multiple different presentations, some of it very um, 
fragmentary and some of it then doesn't become mainstream really until the 13th century. And is he kind of like one of these figures that everyone adds in each generation? They add their own take on it and they're kind of retelling the story and adding bits here that it just becomes, it becomes this kind of super story then that it has all these different layers and different meanings. And there also seems to be this huge interest in the boyhood deeds of Fionn that, that seems to be a, a major part of the story as well. Yes, I think I think the word I suppose we'd use really is tradition. There is a tradition concerning Fionn, a tradition which in written format goes back as far as the 7th century, in oral format perhaps even further. It's a tradition which is cultivated, which re, which reemerges really strong, which well I won't say reemerges wrong word, but which um flourishes really strongly from the 13th century onwards and which attracts new types of stories through it as you're going into the, later into the modern era and that's the story that Natasha and Sheila would be the great experts on that there's this sort of idea of a developing character of Fionn that it's not static and the story you mentioned the, um, the Boyhood Deeds was the subject of a wonderful book by Professor Yoshi Naj The Wisdom of the Outlaw and that really deals with a set of trainings and sort of, I won't say missions is the wrong word, but a set of uh, trials and ordeals that he goes through to become the great hero. But the irony about that is that the boyhood deeds of Fionn McCool are modelled on the boyhood deeds of Cúcollan. So we know that whoever wrote those boyhood deeds was already aware of the boyhood deeds of Cúcollan and may have felt that a great hero like Fionn needed to have a set of boyhood deeds like Cúcollan did. So how intrinsic that is to the tradition of Fionn we don't know but we definitely know it was modelled on the boyhood deeds of Kukala. Natasha I'm fascinated by the, the Fionn cycle folklore project and the fact that there is such an interest in uh, these cycles and there's such an interest in the, the whole mythology of, of Fionn and I wonder why is it why does it have such a resonance today in the 21st century and such a resonance outside of Ireland as well that this seems to be an important story then for, for Scotland scholars in the United States, for scholars around the world, but also has a resonance with, with people more generally as well? Oh, gosh. Well, I think that I think that the importance and the resonance goes all the way back to McPherson, what uh, Sheila uh, Niwarahu was talking about. Um, once, once McPherson's um, epics took off and became massive international bestsellers and people started to to learn about these characters in their anglicized and adapted forms and the manuscripts started being collected and the folklore started being collected uh people people were introduced of course to anglicized forms through mcpherson but then they got to know the 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 authentic perhaps we could say uh the the original finn mccool and Oshin and and all the rest, um, and over the next two hundred years after after Oshin in or Oshin in 1760, um, over three thousand versions of tales and lays were recorded from from storytellers, from uh, singers in Ireland and Scotland, as well as further afield when people emigrated to to North America, to the United States, to Canada. Um, manuscripts were collected. Um, I suppose in Ireland, the the resonance really, really um, became quite important during the push for Irish nationhood in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, when 
scholars were looking uh, looking at fin cycle stories as really great, great cultural and also language learning resources because the language of a lot of this material is is a little bit later and a little bit more accessible than the stories of Kuhalan and the Ulster Cycle. Um, so the Gaelic League was actually responsible for publishing some of the first editions uh, of Fin Cycle tales. Um, Patrick Pierce created uh, Fin Cycle plays for the students at his school to perform. The Irish equivalent of the Boy Scouts at the time was called Fianna Erin. Stories about Finn and the Fianna entered the national school curriculum. They're still taught uh, in some form to this day. Um, so really, the Fianna became an important facet of Ireland's cultural heritage. And people from Ireland in particular emigrating took that with them. And if if you look Outside Ireland, I know um, I know this has come up a little bit. Many people of Irish heritage have an awareness of Finn and the Fianna through children's books and stories that their parents told to them. They're they're perhaps not as well known outside of Ireland, but they're certainly known by some, and they're certainly it's certainly seen as a very important cultural aspect of 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 Irish culture. And you can even add into that when uh, you mentioned Pearson, the plays, and of course the revolutionary movement in the 19, late 19s is the Fenians. And yeah, the, oh, yes. the, the name, the very name <laughs> of the Fenians and the Fianna, uh, you know, has that resonance to the. Uh, but Natasha, I'm, I'm just curious, what exactly? I, 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 I'm, I don't know if I could really pinpoint what, what are the parts of the story that resonate so strongly? Is it the, the stories of Fionn's wisdom, the fact that he's such a great warrior or leader? Is it uh, you know the elements where he's hunting or is it the poetry or is it the fact that there's just so many of these stories that uh, there's it's the kind of almost the quantity creates a momentum in it or uh, what is it exactly that captures the imagination? Well I think it's all of it you know for for a cycle like this to persist and be popular for well over a thousand years the the stories have to be relevant to people at every single point. They have to remain relevant. So there has to be something about them. Um, if 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 you'll permit me to go all the way back to the earliest material, um, Kevin and um, and Brian were talking about the fact that um, the there were many different Fians and there are many different bands of Fianna, and it's possible that at that point in time. Finn and and the Fianna were mirroring an actual social, um, an actual social institution in which young property propertyless noblemen would have spent some time out in the wilderness in warrior bands for a time. So these sorts of people could have seen themselves in in stories of warrior heroes like Finn and the Fianna. If we skip further ahead, Finn gets connected up with with King Cormac MacArthur, the great golden age king of Ireland, and he gets connected up with Ireland's patron saint, of course, St. Patrick, well, via Oshin. Oshin, of course, has his conversations with St. Patrick. And we see a Finn at that point in time leading something of an army for Cormac MacArt. And we're talking sort of late Middle Ages at this point when uh, various lords in Ireland were keeping standing armies. People could see themselves in these warriors. They could see something of their culture reflected 
in um, in the type in the army that Finn led. Of course, they're also superheroes. They're the great superheroes of the Gale, and we all we still love superheroes. Just judging by the popularity of, for instance, the Marvel movies, um, we 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 like to see heroes going out and fighting bad guys and winning the day and. Um, the type of literature that ca- became very, very popular in the late Middle Ages, the early modern period, was was really literature about um, about these great heroes going off and having adventures and defeating invaders and rescuing damsels in distress uh, and and all of this this fantastic heroic stuff that I think still speaks to us, um, and we're still able to to not necessarily identify, but fantasize about. So I think that I think that in every single period, and uh, Finn and the Fianna call out to us in some way. Um, Professor McKillop said that Finn is in in some way a hero for hire, and I would say he's also a hero of the people and a hero of the people at every single um, moment in uh, in in the history of the Gale. And it's funny you mention, you know, comic book superheroes, because during this discussion, that's what I've been constantly thinking about, but I didn't want to to risk saying it in case I was completely <laughs> wrong. But, you know, you do have, you know, Spider-Man in the comics in the 1960s, but the stories change. So there's a different type of Spider-Man in the 70s and 80s and 90s. There's different movie versions of Spider-Man. The story keeps being rewritten and reimagined and and layers added to it and sometimes the layers overlap and and because you have so many stories that kind of enriches it and that's what you see happening with Fionn except it's not over a a 60 year period it's over a a 1000 year period absolutely absolutely it's 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 the same but different and Brian, it's if I in, could, uh, Brian. If I, if, if it, yes, a, a footnote on 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 for hire. The, there's a local um, shoe merchant here, actually the, the best uh, entrepreneur for for uh, for top of the line uh, athletic shoes, who sponsors an annual run, and it is the Finn McCool Run. Now, if you go back to the stories. Fionn is not noted as a runner, although he's athletic and hunting and various other things, but. There many people in, in, around this town with no name Finn McCool would associate him with shoes and running. Very good. Thanks, Jim. That's Jim McKillop. Uh, very interesting. Brian, on that superhero point, uh, is that again something that, that y- you, you were thinking about in your adaptation? Because, of course, you're not just doing the Fionn McCool series. You also have a series based on uh, a, a leading a female warrior from earlier in the cycle, Leah, who, who helps raise Fionn. And, and, I, and I even believe that's being currently turned into a television series. Um, yeah, the the, the Leah uh, series was a, a spin-off of the original Fiona Cool series. It's, uh, it's in development. You never know uh, until you actually get the green light if it's going to go ahead or not. Um, I, I guess um, what's interesting from the whole sort of Fenian cycle perspective is that over that sort of whole period, over a thousand years, basically, as, as other people have mentioned, you've had a lot of consistency in terms of the development of the character, the, the, the sort of young character change in response to what was happening in the country over that particular period. Um, in more recent times, of course, because um, the, the character becomes much more accessible, you, you sort of see from the 1960s onwards, you see a lot more sort of um, 
I guess, um, creative in, in interpretations of the character. Um, absolutely, in terms of superhero, he's he's fantastic material. There is actually a comic by uh, a, a Cork um, a Cork a writer. I can't remember what his name is now. Uh, there is a wonderful comic out there already. Um, it was a graphic novel rather than a continuing series. Um, but the, the, there's huge interest in in sort of having um, that you know a, a sort of a more accessible representation. Of the of the Gaelic Fionn character, um, yeah, um, this, there is quite a hunger out there, which is uh, one of the things I seem to have tapped into. Um, yeah, despite my best efforts. And, and Brian, what about the, the the more negative elements of the story? The you know his behaviour during the whole Dermot and Gronia story, where he, he you know p- perhaps there's some understandable anger when someone runs off with his wife, but then he shows uh, even after the reconciliation, he shows some bitterness and jealousy and doesn't save Dermot when he when he could save him. And the, the, how do how do how do you build those elements of the story? The the more negative part. Of the character, uh, so those negative part of a character adds a lot of sort of dramatic potential. Really, um, if you look at sort of um, sort of more popular things like Game of Thrones, for example, where most of the, the characters uh, are not black uh, or white, they're, they tend to be a shade of, of, of moving from one to the other at different parts of the, uh, the, the story or the narrative. Um, that would work exactly the same for for Fionn. Um, if you have a, a, a perfect character, and that character becomes very, very boring. So having a character that actually has some negative traits makes them more human and um, a lot easier to sort of identify with. Very good. And that, in fact, might even contribute to uh, the reason why the Fionn story resonates or the character resonates precisely because there are those elements of, 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 of grey and uh, the darker elements of the yeah, character as well. Imagine. No, very good indeed. OK, well, we're going to take a quick break now. But when we come back, I'll be talking to Joseph Lav of the Royal Irish Academy about his, re- his place in Irish mythology and some of these literary cycles. So stay with us here on News Talk. Talking history, history. on News Talk. Well, welcome back to Talking History as we look at the life, legend and legacy of Fionn McCool. And I'm delighted to be joined now by Dr. Joseph Flahov, who's Project Assistant on the Dictionary of Medieval Latin from Celtic Sources at the Royal Irish Academy. And he's the author of The Fenian Cycle in Irish and Scots Gaelic Literature. Joseph, you're very welcome. Thank you. Can we talk about maybe the the sources that we have for Fionn McCool? And I wonder, are there any accurate historical sources or how do we evaluate these types of sources? Well, we have many sources of many different uh, types. Uh, the, uh, the literature around Fionn McCool dates back to the earliest point in Irish literature, but uh, none of them are, strictly speaking, historical. Uh, Fionn was not uh, a historical person insofar as we can ascertain. There were some scholars in the past between the 17th and 19th centuries who would have claimed so and uh, tried to assign historical periods to him and to write him into the histories, especially as having been a uh, chief general to uh, several of the early high kings. But uh, it's most likely that uh, he comes from a purely legendary past. Uh, we can figure this out, as was done uh, early uh, in the 19th century. The Scottish scholar J.F. Campbell uh, found signs that uh, Fionn and some of uh, 
the more important characters that surround him were the reflection, pale reflections of pagan gods that became stories in later Christian times. And uh, in the early 20th century, the scholar Gerard Murphy uh, identified that uh, there were uh, place names such as uh, Vindish, Switzerland, Vendre, France, and uh, the great city of Vienna possibly have the name of Finn in its continental form, Vindanos, as the root behind it. Some scholars more recently have doubted that he was actually a god, but uh, we know that uh, the Welsh have a character not nearly so well known, uh, Gwyn ab Nudd, who is uh, who has nearly the same name, and Nudd is the same figure as uh, Nuot, who is, uh, who is uh, Finn's grandfather in the Irish tradition. So we're fairly certain that uh, he goes back a lot farther than the uh, time when he was supposed to have been written into in history, and that he's a literary character who has evolved over nearly 1,500 years of literature. And in your own research, you discovered some obscure references to Fionn and the Fianna in in other different types of sources. There are many different sorts. Uh, I think that... uh, There is a fairly good catalogue of the earliest ones, uh, which are in, uh, which were listed by uh, the scholar Kuno Meyer about a century ago. But uh, I've found, uh, as have many scholars working in this area, that many medieval manuscripts contain texts that haven't been read or studied. Sometimes there are other versions of texts we know about from other or later sources. And I know that folklorists and such are often finding things from things taken down in the 19th century or the school's collection that would be considered to be an authentic part of the living tradition. There are also items that uh, fall outside what we might normally think of as uh, the Irish literary world that uh, draw in uh, are the characters uh, from the uh, Fenian literature, and we uh, we find them in many different places in European culture, especially following the the controversies about Macpherson's Ossian, which was a literary sensation from the 1760s uh, onward to the turn of the 19th century and uh, caused uh, there to be a great stir of appreciation of Irish and Scottish traditional literature in uh, France, Italy, and Germany, and which was uh, a very strong point in the birth of the Romantic movement in 19th century European culture. And when we look at all of the different kinds of sources, is there a consistency in how the character of Fionn McCool is portrayed? Largely speaking, yes. Uh, While uh, there's no authoritative canon, and none of us, myself included, or any of your panellists that we'll be hearing from later, would uh, 
would be able to read and hear all the different stories that have been told, even just the surviving ones. There are many thousands. But we have touchstones of the birth of Finn, uh, how he came to be the head of the Fianna, his strained relations with the high kingship, his uh, son, Asheen, his, uh, his grandson, Oscar, his adventures in defending Ireland from various overseas uh, invaders, his love of the hunt, and, uh, and also legends regarding his old age and death. Uh, but uh, what, is, uh, what varies is that there are just so many different adventures from his, uh, from his heyday but uh, the character, what he's like, seems to be uh, reasonably consistent for a very long period of time. He has a basic biography, even if there is a little bit of tinkering around the edges over time. And it's incredible how the name of Fionn, even the name of the Fenians, Fianna Fáil, the you know the Fenians in the 19th century, it's it's something that has resonated throughout Irish history, hasn't it? Yes, it certainly has. I would. Say uh, that uh, the uh, the Fenian literature has been uh, over the course of Irish history the uh, the most read, most listened to, most told type of uh, types of stories and songs for uh, for more than a thousand years. There's nothing else comes close. In the medieval period, there was a high status on tales about Cahullan, but it seems that the Fenian ones were popular. In, uh, in the later Middle Ages, there were thousands and thousands of heroic poems and also reflective uh, lyric poems in the mouths of the Fenian characters, and there were literary romances, and uh, as well as stories told at every fireside uh, right down into right down into uh, living memory and in many areas still. So it's, uh, it's something that has captured the Irish and uh, Scottish Highland literary and cultural imaginations uh, for as long as we have record. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you about some of those uh, traditions and legacies. Dr. Joseph Flahov of the Dictionary of Medieval Latin from Celtic Sources at the Royal Irish Academy. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. Thank you, Patrick. We'll be back with more on the life, legacy and legend of Fionn McCool right after this break. Talking History, history on News Talk. Well, welcome back to Talking History as we discuss the legends of Fionn McCool. I'm joined by Dr. Natasha Sumner, Dr. Kevin Murray, Brian O'Sullivan, Dr. Sheila Niveraku, Dr. James McKillop, and before the break there we heard from Dr. Joseph Flav. Uh, Kevin, I'm interested in, I suppose, the different aspects of Fionn's character, what we learn about him as a, as a father, what we learn about him in terms of his relationships with women, what we learn about him in terms of his different types of leadership skills. Uh, how does Fionn come out of the the different texts and accounts? Well, I think, as Brian said earlier, what makes him interesting is, is the multifaceted versions we get, even within the consistency that Joseph was talking about, which is there over a long period of time. We're still talking about a character who has very largely in the medieval period negative relationships with women, it has to be said. He wouldn't be 
the character to whom um, women would... We, we, we one great exception I mentioned in a moment, but generally his relationships with women are bad for him and bad for the women involved in the early period. There's one great exception, and this is his wooing of Alva, who is a daughter of Gráinne, the Gráinne that he lost to Diarmid. And he, has, he builds a relationship with her as an old man uh, uh, with a younger woman, which is seen as a very, very positive. And it's the first major story, really, in the cycle. It's the first story it's towards the end of the 10th, maybe started the 11th century. And it's the first longish story in the cycle before we get as far as Ogil of Nishinorak. His relationship with his son throughout is very good between uh, Fiona and Oshin. And ironically enough, there is an early story about a quarrel between the two, a story which may date back as far as the late 8th or early 9th century. And this story is seen as sort of exceptional within the tradition of that there would be quarrelling because generally there's harmony between them. As a leader within the Fian then, he generally has good points and actually his negative presentation is largely centred around the great story that we mentioned already of the Toriuk. And that is the one which colours our understanding of how Fionn may be presented because outside of Ogil of Nishinorik, it is the great story from the early period dating perhaps to the 14th century though with roots going farther back. So... Multifaceted, and that's the and that's the, and sorry, and that's the Dermot and Gronia story. Yeah. So again, sorry, just just multifaceted age. I think is a big factor in it. When he's presented as older, he's often, I suppose, in the modern parlance, grumpy old man, not particularly nice. And I think it's this multifaceted presentation which makes him such a fascinating character. And just to clarify, when you mentioned that his his the the, the, the relationships with women or the encounters with women don't don't go well for either party, what what exactly do you mean by that? Well, he tends to. No, we don't have an awful awful lot of information about it. But he tends when he's dealing with women, he tends not to treat them particularly well, and he tends to uh, to. Uh, like the, the word, like there's an early version of the German and Gronje story, for example. There's an, early, there's an early version of the Finn and Gronje story, should I say? And we're told that the word, what Gronje felt towards Fionn was miskish hatred. You know that he seems to evoke in his relationships with women, sort of um, a very much a negative paradigm of masculinity, which doesn't work so well for him, and which doesn't augur so well for some of the women involved as well. So that he ends up killing. Some people, uh, you know, the brothers and sisters, brothers in particular of of women that he was involved with, so that there's a very sort of a um, a, a negative, like women don't spell happiness for him generally. That's right. really what comes out through the early sources. Sheila, is there also then a danger of things being lost in translation or being changed in translation or perhaps different uh, errors in texts leading to different uh, versions and more confusion? Um, well, there's a lot of material, I suppose, and um, um, yeah, I always find when when I'm teaching the Finn cycle, um, it, it can be hard to find suitable translations. Um, um, we have a lot of books that that would have been maybe based on a small number of manuscript sources, but then when you actually go in and start looking, you kind of find different versions and so on. So I wouldn't say there's exactly confusion, but um, as as Joseph was saying, there's certainly plenty more material to uncover. Um, but on the other hand, I, I think we all revel in finding different versions of stories and comparing them and looking at how, how the stories evolved or changed over time as well. That's I think that's part of the fun of, of the cycle when you start looking at it um, from a sort of an academic point of view. Um, so generally, I suppose books aimed at the general public, they'll give one version of a story and, and that'll be it. So, Toriach Thiermadag is 
Dermot and Groin, there, there, there's a sort of a well, well, there's a well-known edition of it, but when you actually start looking at the folklore and, and different lays about Dermot and, and Groin, you find it a lot of other different versions as well. Um, and it's, it's just fascinating, really, kind of going in and looking at, at, at what was behind the changes and, and, and trying to figure out, you know, why, why did people take interest in this side of the story or, or, or the other side of the story? You know, so um, I, I wouldn't use the word confusion, but but just I suppose the richness of, of the tradition is, is um, definitely... Um, it, it, yeah, it can be overwhelming, um, I suppose, but but it was definitely a lot, a lot of fun as well. I suppose, sort of going through it. Yeah, very good. And I can see that exactly. The fact that there is such a richness that that uh, and the differences, teasing out the difference, spotting the differences, uh, leads yeah. to quite excitement as well. Jim, talk to me about the death of Fionn. Does he actually die? In some accounts, he 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 goes to sleep, or he seems to be. It's said that he's sleeping in a cave to return at some future point. How how important well, they- is the is this is the perceived death of Fionn? Well, I I, I think that another one of our panelists would be better uh, in, better informed to answer that question because I certainly know the one about sleep the sleeping warrior and that that's a that's a motif found all over the world uh, that you know the hero has not gone away is going to redeem us uh, but uh, on the death of Finn I, I I would I would defer to one of my one, one of my colleagues. Very good. Natasha, I wonder, would you like to, to take that on about uh, uh, th- that, uh, that's an important part of the story, the fact that perhaps he's there, the hero to come again? Sure, absolutely. We do get a few death tales from the early, early period, but they seem to fade into distant memory. And we really don't hear a lot about the death of Finn Um really past the 13th century. Every now and then it'll come up. And of course, the oral tradition is just, Sheila was talking about about the many different versions of stories, really the, the, the multiformity of the tradition, the richness, the vastness. And you do occasionally get references to a death of Finn in oral tradition, but it's really in no way canonical. So really, I think the, the most important story in um, late medieval, early modern, and modern times is the story of Finn and the Fianna sleeping in a cave, awaiting their their call to return and save Ireland, save the Gales from their oppressors. So, so Finn is not dead, Finn is waiting to return. And Natasha, do you think that part of the reason why the story resonates is that it can appeal to to young and old? It can be in 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 stories for children, but it can also be in in a book like James Joyce's Finnegan's Wake, one of the most complex works in the English language. So the the story of Fionn can be can be reappearing and reinvented and reimagined across all four types of media, all types of of, of story experience. Absolutely. The stories and and the tradition itself is eminently adaptable. Finn and the Fianna can be something to anyone. And I think that um, that's perhaps something that's missing from modern children's stories, from the way that Finn and the Fianna are taught in schools today. We we tend to get a handful of the same stories. So you'll hear the story of, of Finn and the Salmon of Knowledge. You'll hear about Finn and the Giant at the Giant's Causeway. Uh, you'll hear a little bit about Grania running off with Dermot, but you don't hear very many different stories. And and as the panelists today have, have said, there are thousands of different tales about Finn and the Fianna. And I think that 
were we able to get editions and translations of more stories out there? And perhaps once the FinCycle um, database, folklore database is online and people can access more versions of these stories, maybe people will find more uh, more stories about Finn and the Fianna that, that spe- speak to them in particular. Okay, well, I think that's an excellent note on which to end our discussion. My thanks to my my brilliant panel of experts tonight for for drawing out the very many different threads of the Fionn story across more than a thousand years of history. Dr. Natasha Sumner of Harvard, Dr. Kevin Murray of UCC, Brian O'Sullivan and his brilliant series on Fionn McCool, Dr. Sheila Niveriku also of UCC, Dr. James McKillop and, of course, Dr. Joseph Flahov of the Royal Irish Academy. That does bring us to the end of another edition of Talking History. My thanks to Susan Cal, my producer, Peter Malloy on sound. Next week, we'll find out about the Tudors in love, how the Marquis de Lafayette became the hero of two worlds, and the making of the Anglo-Irish Agreement. So join us next week on News Talk. We've been talking history. Good night. Talking history, history. on News Talk.